You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. As always, I'm your host, David Frizzell, and this episode, another one, is all about the giant topic of change. Campbell McPherson is a smart chap. He's a pleasure to chat with and a fountain of knowledge and experience when it comes to understanding the principles of change and exercising them to lead effectively in our personal lives, our teams, and our organizations. No need for a big intro to this one. If you're up for some serious wisdom, you're really going to like it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Campbell McPherson. Campbell McPherson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Wonderful to have you here. And I was just waxing lyrical about your book before we hit record. It's very book the the it's a very good book, The Power to Change. But I know it's not your first book, it's at least your second. And I'm guessing from what's over your shoulder, it actually might be your third. Is that right? No, it's my second, but the third is out oh, geez, uh, at I'm, the I'm, end of this month from, in Booktopia. I know, I can't believe it. The third one's the third one is is called You Part Two. And it's about thriving in the second half of your life. And it's co-written with my wife, Jane, and I. it'll be available. It's available to order from Booktopia now. Co-written with your wife. That is a dangerous project, Campbell. Oh, that's a whole podcast in itself. I bet it is. You're not the first person I've had on the podcast who's written a book with their, their wife. They all pretend that it went really well, but uh, I, can, I, I know better than that. <laughs> it's just have to lay down certain rules, like I'm the only one touching the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, this whole concept of change and managing change and leading change really well, whether it's in an organization, in your social life, politically, socially, personally, any of those things, it's totally fascinating to me. You've done such a nice job of of describing the breadth of understanding in your book. And I particularly enjoyed the chapters around the psychology of change. So I'd love you to bring some of those nuggets of wisdom to this conversation tonight. There's so much to talk about, but I, I want to start by getting your understanding about what it is that you think you do. What is this whole change leadership, change management work that you do when you describe change? And I'm guessing mm. most of your work comes in the organizational context. How do you describe it and how do you think of it even more importantly? Well, the to me, leadership is entirely about leading change. And I didn't realize that until I sat down to write my first book, which was started writing in 2016. It was published in 20, 2017 and, and actually went on to win Business Book of the Year over here in the UK, which is amazing, frankly. But that was called The Change Catalyst. And that was about leading change. But when I sat down to write it, I didn't know it was about leading change. By the time that I'd, I'd I saw this wonderful survey from Bain & Co that said that that 88% of change initiatives fail and I went oh my gosh that's that's the hook for the book so the first question was why so I, I sat down and wrote out a, a list and then got it down to 10 is the top 10 reasons why change fails how we can go through go through most of them but fundamentally they were all about leadership and so then I sat back and went that's interesting so change from my perspective after having helped organizations with organizational change for something like 30 years now is 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 what i help people is is to lead change because leadership is all about leading change and what i began to realize by writing that book was that it's not just about 
leading change, follow me over the over the edge of the uh, of the hill here. It's about helping people to want to change. So, in the power to change, that the book that that uh, that uh, alerted you to to my presence, I talk about the five key truths about change, and it's it's as important and as key and as as relevant to organisations and to leaders as it is to us as well. If you don't mind, I wouldn't mind going through them just 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 quickly. Well, you're stealing one of my questions for later, so this is a perfect time to get okay. on top of them. And the first thing is that change is inevitable. And as leaders and as leaders of people and therefore as leaders of, of change, you know, we need to understand that, that change is inevitable. And it's not just a blinding glimpse of the obvious. It's actually something that once we understand and accept it, it's inevitable, then we can actually start to move on and, and embrace it. And the, the second thing that I preach to to leaders when I run leading change workshops with with Henley Business School and with with organizations direct over here in the UK, then it's all change is personal. So even the most complex of organizational changes is actually the culmination of a myriad of individual personal changes. And once leaders work that out, then they can actually start to to take the uh, go on to the next step, which is helping people to want to change because we all erect our own personal barriers to change is, is the third really truth that I've learned over 30 years. Now, those barriers, some of them could last a couple of seconds and others can last a lifetime. And as leaders, it's, it's, it's up to us to help our people to identify the barriers that they automatically erect to change and to help them overcome them. And of course, we can be change leaders ourselves. So the number four thing is, the four truths I learned is that all change is emotional. In fact, there was a wonderful uh, survey done by the Corporate Leadership Council back in 2004 that showed that emotion is four times more powerful than logic when it comes to change. And we we know this, you know, when a leader stands up and says, we're going to double the size of the, the business or we're going to half the, half the cost or whatever it is, you're not engaged until they engage you emotionally because you want to know why. Why are we doing this? What sort of business are we going to be? Why should I engage my heart in this and just not my head? And the fifth truth that I have already talked about is we only change if we want to. I mean, you and I know this, David. We, we, we only change if we want to. So as leaders, leadership is about helping your people to want to change. And it's taken me 150,000 words in books and a lot of lectures and a lot of workshops to realize that simple truth that, frankly, as a leader, your job is to help your people to want to change. Isn't the price, the writing process, an amazing thing? You probably sat oh. down to write a book thinking that you had ideas, really good ideas. You'd done a lot of work, a lot of consulting yeah. in this field, but it wasn't until you start trying to make sense of that in sentence and paragraph form that you're forced to think ever so deeply about it. That is so true. I didn't realize I was writing a book on leadership when I sat down to write to write the book. I was just writing a book to think, and this is the first one, The Change Catalyst, to write a book to think, well, let's put everything I've learned over the last 25 years or so down in writing, and I'll use it as a, as a calling card when I restart my consultancy. I was working in Abu Dhabi at the time for one of the largest sovereign wealth funds there. And and I, there was a three-year contract. It was coming to an end. I knew it was coming to an end a couple of years later. So I thought, right, I've got to restart my consultancy. What am I going to do? And I sat down to write and I just was, well, why does change fail? What are the ingredients to successful change? I thought there's there's at least half a book in that. And it wasn't until I'd actually written out the bullets. I went, hang on a second. This is a book about leadership. 
So, yeah, it's change leadership. Now, the power to change is about embracing personal change because in business, you've got to have both. You've got to have leaders who know how to lead change, and but you need everyone else ready, willing, and able to embrace change. And then, of course, what the power to change is all about is is me, you, embracing personal change at work and in life. So, so it ended up being a half culture and half self-help book. So many of the questions that I wanted to ask you tonight are built around these five truths of change. And I just want to go through them a little bit and talk about each one sure. of them and maybe ask you a question. Change is inevitable was number one. Has it always been the case or is this a, a truism of human humankind for eons and we've only just started articulating that to ourselves really strongly? Well, that's a great question. It's a part of being being human. I mean, Aristotle first acknowledged it or acknowledged it and wrote it down. And that, that was, you know, more that was a couple of thousand years ago. Buddha did this did the same thing. Disraeli, who was Prime Minister of of, of England twice back in the mid eighteen hundreds, you know, he said that change is constant, change is inevitable. And goodness me, what he would have thought of today. He didn't realise the pace of change was so so rapid. But in the last couple of years, and as We've all learnt with with COVID that change is definitely inevitable, and it's quite emotional and difficult to when we need to embrace it. You know, the lockdowns which you're going through in in Brisbane at, at the moment, as we record this, ironically, with the England has got down to twenty five thousand new cases of COVID a day, so we're opening up. Anyway, moving on. I don't understand. The two passports I have couldn't be more extreme, and there's very little logic in either of them. But anyway, moving on. Lockdowns are really, really difficult. And in, during the last couple of years, a lot of leaders that I've spoken to have realized that anxiety is a real thing. They didn't realize that before because they felt it themselves finally. And so to help their people through, to embrace the changes and realize that change is, is inevitable. And actually, what I mean with change is inevitable is it's not a short-term thing. It's not a phase we're going through. Change is part of life, and it always will be. And driven, I guess, largely, I mean, you, you talk about Aristotle having said it 2,000 years ago and others having said it in the past, but now we're, we've got this thing, this technology that is changing our lives so quickly, yeah. I guess the pace mm-hmm. of change has increased in velocity to completely aligned with the pace of change in technology. Not the only factor, of course, though. Your, your oh, but it's second, a major one, yeah. It is, isn't it? The yeah. the increase in speed. Now, the second truth of change is that all change is personal. And I find this a really interesting one. I I cannot find any holes in it as a statement. It is 100% true in all of my experience, but it still kind of catches organizations off guard, I guess. You ask, I don't know, frontline staff to change the way that they they do something about serving customers or anyone in an organization about the system that they use or the order in which they do things or even the desk they sit in when they come into mm. the office in ah, the morning. That is so true. That is so true. And people take it enormously personal. Now, there are well-meaning senior executives that have, and this this change has filtered down through the organization to the point where it actually has to turn into action. And these well-meaning executives, five layers above the frontline staff, probably haven't stopped to think for a moment that that's a really personal change to those staff. How do you think of it? And does it still catch you off guard in your career? Of course. 
In fact, most of the revelations is because uh, I've suddenly worked out what was going on, that all change was personal. I've been standing on stages in the past and talking about what we're going to be doing with the organization. And it was also very logical and just expected the rest of the of the organization that were in the auditorium to to almost applaud, you know, the wisdom of the of the uh, of the strategy. And of course, there was dead silence because everyone was thinking, "What's in it for me? You know, What's how this is this going me? to affect me?" Yeah, exactly. So all all changes is definitely personal. And I, because of COVID, I think a lot of leaders have finally dawned on that fact that just standing up and talking logic and waving your hands around and showing some wonderful PowerPoint slides is not enough to get people across the line. When I preach, preach, when I lecture and 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 in keynote speeches about this is. One of the the reasons why change fails and the essential ingredient to successful change is you've got to understand that there are implications and consequences for every change, for every strategy. So getting people together and saying, this is what we want to do. What are the implications of this change is the most single, the most important single thing that a leader can actually do. Identify the implications of the change beforehand, but not just with you and your closest friends or your other exec members, but with other people in the organization. Let's get together and work out what the implications are. And when I do that with companies, it's the most powerful session that that I, I ever do with organizations, getting lots of people together to go, this is what we want to achieve. Now, what are the implications of that? Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Now, the third truth about change is that we all erect our own barriers to change. And I've stumbled across this in various forms at different points in my reading and through my podcast. And I remember as a result of a podcast I did a long time ago, I did this little experiment in the next workshop that I ran. And I I, I put up on the slide a picture of a syringe. And I said, Okay. okay, everybody, there's a magical syringe there. If you take that injection, and this was before COVID, mind you, if you take that injection, you will not age another day in your life and you will live forever exactly as you are right now. And then I gave them a a continuum. Right down the end was absolutely give it to me right now. And down the other end was no, I will never take that. And I asked them to stand along the continuum. And wow. I, and I, it was is fascinating. And, and, and it's such a good idea. Yeah. It, and I, all it was was a podcast guest had given me that idea. So I, I went away and did that. And the idea was, you know, to have a great conversation, to talk about change resistance and, you know, early adopters and people who are moving. People in the middle said, look, you know, I'm in the middle, but if my family all took it, I would probably take it, you know, because if they're not going to age and I don't want to become old and die eventually, I want to stay yeah. young forever with them. And those who would never take it, they started with this kind of rational, it's not natural, how would the world work? And then over time, when the others started trying to infect them with their enthusiasm for the the fountain of youth, their reasons for not wanting to do it became less and less rational. Fascinating. They were just clinging. And, And it became a conversation about... Well, you could still get hit by a car, and what about that? And what about accidents? You could fall off a building. It was becoming ah. really because, and what the reason I bring it up is because your fourth truth is that all change is emotional. 
So mm. I guess they were standing there with emotion being four times the power of logic, telling them, yep. this doesn't sit right with me. I, I don't know why. My emotions are telling me no, so my rational brain is just going to kind of make up anything. So I love that idea to their own barriers for the change. David, I think you should give Queensland University a call right now. You could get a grant to do a study on that. that that's brilliant. That is such a good idea. I think I might... I might steal that for a workshop. I think you that's fantastic. Feel free to steal that. And look, it worked better. Than, you know when you do these things in a workshop and you think, oh, I wonder how this is going to go? Yeah, it went <laughs> so much better than I imagined it was. I still, I reckon it was three years ago, and I still remember ah. exactly how it panned out. What are your experiences with these emotional, with these barriers that people erect in your head? We've already yeah. said that change is inevitable. That's an easy one, and it's picking up speed. We've said that change is personal, which is kind of obvious when you look at it, but it's, it's so easy to forget in the organizational setting. So when you combine that with people creating their own barriers to change, how do you make sense of that as a change agent, a change leader? And, and, and those barriers to change are all emotional as well. So that's where you know, the three and four sort of sort of go together. What the point behind the Leading Change Workshops and webinars that I run is really to help leaders to become more empathetic. If you tell leaders, see, you need to be more empathetic, nothing's going to happen. But when you actually explain to them and get them to tell stories as well about, about a change that has worked, and they start to realize that actually it's because everyone was really engaged, engaged their heart, not just their head, and getting all those out of the table. And then we, we talk personally about everyone erects barriers to change. We make it normal. So What's yours? Uh, let me tell you what, what some of the, the normal ones are. It's fear. Uh, let's run through some fears. What do you think? So I ask people, why do you think 88% of change fails? And then they come up with all these reasons, and 80% of those are all emotional. It's fear. It's fear of failure. It's, it's status. It's fear of identity. It's, it's, it's all these things that are all, all emotional. So we help people to, first step is to identify that that's my default setting, and actually that it's normal. And that all change is emotional and the emotions that we go through when big change is done to us particularly are predictable, they're profound, and they're entirely normal. And once people realize that in workshops and webinars, you, the, the emotional outpouring that I've had is, is quite amazing. One lady sat there and was crying throughout it, just wiping away tears. And afterwards, she came up to me after the session and said, I'm sorry, my, my father died three weeks before, and every single one of the emotions that you went through on the Kubler-Ross change curve, uh, every single one of those emotions I had experienced, and I thought I was weak. I didn't realize these were normal emotions when big change is done to you, and just that knowledge was so powerful to her, because once you realize they're normal, you don't have to judge yourself for, for having felt them. You can then start to move up and out of the curve and do something about them. So I'm guessing it's the role of the change agent, the change leader in an organization yeah. to think about these first four truths. And if we are able to address them, to accept that it's personal and help staff or anyone who's part of that ecosystem that's changing to buy into it and want to be part of it, to understand the barriers that they've erected and help them work through those barriers, to acknowledge the emotions that they're feeling and work through them on the curve of emotions and the the progress there. And if you've failed to do those things, then the fifth truth comes and kicks you in the backside. And it says that we only <laughs> change if we want to. And, and you, leader, have been unsuccessful in making me want to do this change. You haven't sold it to me. 
that's entirely it. And and actually, if you go through all the first four and you don't get to the fifth, start again. Let's go back. <laughs> let's let's go back here. And this is such a what my wife could would call the BGO, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. That that it's it's we only change if we want to. Therefore, a leader's job is to help our people to want to change. And frankly, if you just that sentence. That is one of the things to take away from, from this is our job is to help our people to want to change. And if we are going to change personally ourselves, we can be our own change leader. So it's up to us to help ourselves to want to change. And once you sort of retune your brain accordingly and flick a switch, you think, hang on a sec. So what is going to help me to be able to, to actually want to change? And as soon as you start to work out what it is that gets you going, what what are the barriers I'm erecting? What are the emotions I'm feeling? Is it my ego? Is it my pride? Is it I'm fear of financial downturn? Well, what is it that I'm afraid of here? Once you start to not judge your emotions, just looking at the emotions and the negative thoughts that you're having and putting some distance between you and them, you can then help yourself to want to change. And it's easier to think of it when you think of it yourself. Now, put yourself in your, with your leader's hat on to go, I need to do this for my people too, or otherwise... They're not going to change. They're not going to get engaged. And if they're not engaged, they're only going to deliver 20% of the value if we're lucky. Over the time that you've been working in this field, in, in this industry, this art and discipline of change. I like have, art. That's yes, good. it's an art. Yeah. It is an art. Yeah, I like that. You, you must have, in your mind, do, do changes start to form into a number of different archetypes? I know every organization you go to, every situation is slightly different, but are there categories of change that organizations ask you to help them with? I think it's a bit like the the spectrum that you described earlier in your in your brilliant workshop example. At one end is the pure logical, where the it comes down to the leader. If you've got an old-fashioned command and control leader that will stand up and say, we are going to double the size of the business, we're going to triple the profit, it starts now, it's good news for everyone, crack on. And everyone is sitting there in the auditorium with all of their challenges and concerns and fears not being expressed. So if you don't express them, they become enormous in your head and, and become enormous barriers to change. Then on the other end, you've got the completely empathetic leader who says, Here's the destination I think we can achieve, double the size of the business, triple the profit. Now, there's the destination. What we now need together is to come up with a strategy. What are the consequences? What are the implications? What do we need to do to achieve that? Come on, team. I think we can achieve this. What do we need to do? do we, what's the skills we need? What's the staff we need? How do, what are the implications of, in terms of facilities? Of, of uh, What do we need to be famous for? What do we need to be brilliant at? And suddenly everyone's engaged and what the destination is. So they're the two extremes. And of course, I've seen shades of grey along that spectrum innumerably. So I don't have it. It'd be an interesting book, actually. We should work on this together about the caricatures of change between those two extremes. But I just try and help people. And I recommend to people to be as close to the empathetic change leader as possible. Now, sometimes that's not always possible. And sometimes you have to be a command and control leader when, you know, when the ship is sinking. Back in March, April of last year in the Northern Hemisphere, when everything went completely pants and there was anxiety and companies didn't know whether they were going to survive the lockdown and, and was this permanent and the, the stock market tanked by 30%. And it was all about plugging the holes and, and shoring up the finances. Well, there's no time for empathy there. 
that is just let's plug the holes and and stick the fingers in the dikes and you know I'm mixing my metaphors terribly here, but keep the ship like afloat. <laughs> keep the ship afloat. Then once it was afloat, all of my clients went, okay, now suddenly everyone is working from home. How did we accomplish that? Now let's actually let's now put the empathy hat on and make sure everyone's actually productive, well, healthy and real calming anxiety and you know, how are we going to make this work but it needed to first it was man the lifeboats then we could work out <laughs> how to make the lifeboats more productive so i'm going to put you on the spot here what's the most brilliant oh. strategy you've ever come up with in an organization to help them engage their staff in a difficult large structural organizational change what's the most brilliant one where you look back and go yeah you know what that was clever we read the scene, we understood the yep. change, and we got the yep. people. Okay, there's there's two things. One one example was a it ended up being the largest IFA group in the UK. We uh, I went in to, to help the senior team put five companies together into one, and it became twelve thousand independent financial advisors and a thousand staff. And it, it, it was it was a big business, and what I realised was lacking there was a purpose of the business because everyone was walking around sort of aimlessly, really, five different companies, not one culture, all that sort of stuff. There was a lot of work we did, which was great. But the key thing was a purpose. So I got the the rest of my fellow executive team together because they asked me to be HR director and, and, and on the board of this um, after we'd put it together. And I got everyone together and said, we fail the pub test. When we're sitting at the pub talking to our friends, what do you do? Oh, I work for Sesame. What does Sesame do? Well, you know those people that sold that really dodgy mortgage protection insurance to your mum? Well, we give – it's not working. So what do we do? So we came up with a statement and a syntax that I use all the time, which is we enable – then you insert your core customers here. So we enable IFAs, okay, and then two, and then you insert a distinctive and significant outcome. So it was we enable IFAs to run really successful businesses. And it sounds so simple, and that took months for, for me to work with everybody to come up with that. But it just focused on who the customers were, because there was a little bit, is it the end customers, is it the IFAs, is it the regulator, is it, you know, and what are we there to do? Where to help them to be successful. And for them to be successful, they need to be in tune with the laws, they need customer service, they need to be knowledgeable. It all flowed from there. So that's one, but to answer your actual question, it was in one of the, the largest investment platforms in this company. The CEO brought me in and said, right, Cam, I've got the strategy. I need you to do your workshops and bring everyone, get everyone on board to my strategy. And I went, oh, gosh, there's so many things wrong with that sentence. What is your strategy? And this is what I alluded to before. He said, we're doubling the size of the business, tripling the profit. I went, okay, that's not a strategy. It's a destination, but that, that's fine. I said, so what we did is we got 100 people, the top 100 people in of the organization. So that was about 15% of the, no, about 8% of the, of the company in the room. Top 100 senior managers in one big room. The CEO gave his presentation on what the strategy was. I then stood up and said, now, what could possibly go wrong? And everyone tittered. And then I went, no, seriously, that's what we're going to do. So he's just told you what we're doing, what's going to happen. You've got all of these concerns and fears and, and, and negative thoughts going on in your head. Let's get them out on the table. And they was nervous to start with. And then it was a it became a tsunami of throwing rocks at the CEO strategy. 
And then we put them on flip charts. We split up into tables. We prioritize them. And then we started to work on, well, how are we going to overcome them? So by the end of a single day, we had the top 100 people in the organization not only bought into the strategy, but it was their strategy. It was their destination. They could see how they could do it because all of their obstacles had um, had been aired and they themselves were working together to work out how they could overcome them. So that's probably my proudest day in, in 20, 30 years. And I've tried to do a similar thing with just about every organization since, but it requires a CEO who is confident enough, but humble enough to understand that he actually needs to ask people what could go wrong with my strategy <laughs> to turn it into their strategy. And yeah. that requires a unique CEO. In one brilliant workshop, you tapped into the all changes personal thing. You gave them yep. the chance to get all of the barriers they imagine out of their head onto some flip charts and socialize them and that you got them to buy in with a positive emotion because they themselves walked through all of the steps that would be required to unpick each of those barriers. They went through the change curve without knowing they were going through the change curve. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they, they did. And actually, that, that happened years before I sat to wrote, uh, write the first book. because uh, So I instinctively knew what needed to be done. But the book enabled me to unpack that and go, oh, I should do that more often. In fact, we need to get barriers out on the table. And there's some brilliant leadership books that simply talk about that, get the barriers out on the table so they can overcome them. Otherwise, it's just the change isn't going to work. The strategy isn't going to work. Because the barriers still exist. It's just, they exist silently in people's heads and they exist and in those quiet water cooler conversations, all those yeah. sly team messages yeah. outside yeah. the main group chat, all of that kind of stuff. The barriers still no. exist. So don't pretend they're not there. And so many organizational changes, the vast majority it's almost like just drink the Kool-Aid and get on with it. You know, we don't want to hear you any on the negative. bus or not? Well, actually, one CEO stood up. I'll never forget this. And he slammed his – this is in an exec meeting because everyone was coming up with all these obstacles to his strategy because he hadn't bothered to talk to anyone. And he stood up and he slammed his fist down on the table and said, you're either on the bus or you're under it, and stormed <laughs> out of the room. Brilliant. I went, oh, this is going well. <laughs> well, you're sitting there thinking, well, this is fantastic. There's going to be months of consultancy work in this joint. <laughs> Actually, it was. It wasn't very positive, but the, it was it, it was good for the bank balance. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, Campbell, I'm, I'm imagining with the kind of depth of understanding that you have about change, the understanding the emotions, you know, tackling the barriers, making it personal, all of that kind of stuff, I'm imagining that in your personal world, your actual Campbell McPherson world, it means that you're able to precisely execute all the changes in your life that you dream up. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, of course. 100%, obviously. You're able to use all of that logic and rationality to completely have all your ducks aligned right through your life. How can we use the wisdom of, of understanding change in an organizational level as leaders to help us with the things going on in our own life. You talk so wonderfully about losing weight in your book. I do, because that's a challenge that we all have, uh, or vast majority of us can, can identify with. You know, it's a change that we know all the logic to, and yet it's the emotions that trumpet every single time. And so, yes, I talk about that, about, and I use the examples of, now, what are the emotions you're feeling? You know, why aren't you following the logic? You know. Let's go through the logic again of 40% of Americans, or 42, I think, are obese, and th almost 30% of Australians and UKs, and 
uh, much less less in, in Europe. So you go through all the logic and the health benefits and all that sort of stuff, but it requires us to actually want to change. So I really, it's funny, it's funny. One of the most senior partners in one of the senior firms rang me up and said, Cam, I just bought your book. Let me talk about the losing weight. And he talked to me about the losing weight chapter for 20 minutes. And I thought, okay, that's really hit, hit home because it, it is a story that about how we have to help ourselves to want to change it, to stop buying the cakes and, and uh, Tim Tams that we all love, you know, and set ourselves up to succeed. It's a, it, for any leader, it's a wonderful way of going through the essential ingredients of sustainable change, but about ourselves. So your what you said was made made me grin about yes how I've got change sorted completely in my personal life obviously because I, I preach it which which did make me laugh and that's where it that's where the rubber really hits the road when you actually realise hang on I'm preaching all this how can I learn from what I'm actually talking about and what is it that I so and the the summary of that to me the big lesson I learned is be kind to yourself believe in yourself and be kind to yourself. So I beat myself up all the time about, am I being as successful as I should be? Have I, that particular workshop you know, didn't go, I wouldn't rate it as a 10 out of 10, therefore it was a failure. Just lots of different things that I beat myself up the time. So number one, I've learned, well, whether I've learned it emotionally or just logically, is be kind to yourself. So trust yourself and be kind to yourself and just don't expect perfection every time. It's very interesting you talk about the idea of of want, the desire, and I bet anyone who you ask, there's an enormous percentage of, of adults in Australia, the UK, America, who are overweight or obese, they would say, I want to lose weight. That's what I want. You've, yeah, I've, but that's, I've, I've but bought into that's it. the head. The head wants to. The heart doesn't want to because that's you're 20% of the way there. And then what do you do? Oh, of course I want to go to the pub and, and I can't possibly not have my you know normal six pints. or well, it's only one bucket of KFC, you know, or, or it's like, well, I was going to go for a walk, but, you know, now I think it's the commitment that you need from your heart. There's lots of examples in the book or tips in the book, set small steps. and But fundamentally, it's you really do need to want it. A very good friend of mine has lost 34 kilos in the last year. Very impressive. And it is, but it required a trigger. And there needs to be an. It's he finally found the emotional trigger, and it normally is a trip to the doctor, and it was a trip to the doctor where the doctor says, "I hope you've got life insurance." I mean, I'm, I'm, you should. Doctors don't normally say this. Anyway, what are you talking about? He said, "Because I think you're going to need it," and that was the thing. And he came away from the doctors thinking, "Right, who do I complain to? I need to get this guy struck off." But by the time he got home, he went. He may have a point there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it was just, but but triggers can, I met a taxi driver in Vegas. There you go. There's a good start to a to a sentence. Just a quick story. Taxi driver in Vegas. I hopped in. It was it was 6 a.m. I was, I'd, I'd given a conference speech the, the night before and I was, I need to catch a plane. So at six o'clock, the sun's just rising above the strip, hopping into this taxi. And this fellow looked like the Lorax. If you ever, if you're old enough to read Dr. Zeus as a kid, the Lorax was, he just looked like um, – uh, anyway, he was just – his hair was sticking up everywhere. He had a big bushy moustache. The tracksuit he was wearing was filthy. He looked like he'd, he'd, he'd fallen asleep in the in the, in the the trunk of his car. You know, it was just – it was hilarious. So I hopped in and he went, I suppose you're wondering why I'm drinking water. And I thought, it's 6 o'clock in the morning and it's Vegas. No, drinking water is not the most outlandish thing I've ever seen, you know. 
And he went, it's because I used to be twice my weight. My father beat me as a kid. I've been on, I've been on drugs and drinking four liters of co Coke and two bottles of vodka every day. And I thought, I'm just waking up. What Take are you talking about? <laughs> Suddenly I was really awake. Yeah, exactly. And I went, well, what made you change? And he said, you know what? I just woke up one day and thought, I'm going to have to stop blaming my parents for everything. I threw away the Coke. I threw away the vodka. I threw away the pills. And I've drinking, drank nothing but water ever since. And I thought, you just got to find that little emotional trigger. It wasn't logic. The logic inside of him knew that he should stop blaming his parents. He shouldn't be drinking a litre of vodka and four litres of Coke while he was a taxi driver. He shouldn't be on these drugs. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't be eating all the food. But there was some little emotional trigger that he found. And I must admit, that was the question. I didn't ask him what it was, but he said, I just suddenly woke up one morning and went, I need to stop blaming my parents for everything. That is fascinating. All right, Campbell, before I let you go, a lot of people have listened to this podcast. They've heard you. They've bought into your message. What are those three nuggets that you can leave them with that will help remind them to be better at managing change in their life or leading change in their organization? What are the three biggest tips you've got for us? Well, as a leader, I recommend the three biggest things are clarity, clarity of what you're trying to achieve, both the numbers and the narrative and clarity of why everybody needs. You will not succeed in any change unless you have utter clarity of what you're trying to achieve and why. And the second tip for leaders is understand the implications, engage people to understand the implications of the change before you set out on the journey. Or if you've already set out on the journey, do it really quickly afterwards. <laughs> but they're the two key things. And the, th the third one for leaders is understand that emotion trumps logic every time. So it's about helping people to want to change. As individuals, I'll just go with understand that change is emotional, trust yourself, and be kind to yourself. Campbell McPherson, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining me, me on the podcast. Pleasure, David. Thank you so much for asking me. And that was Campbell McPherson. I love that chat so much. So much good stuff. The five truths about change and those three nuggets of gold at the end. To be an effective leader of change, number one, you need clarity about what the change is and why we're making it. Number two, understand the implications of the change to everyone who's affected. And number three, understand that emotion trumps logic. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Campbell on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. <music>